When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Deanna Rayburn about her latest novel, An Impossible Imposter. Deanna Rayburn is the author of two best-selling series featuring Lady Julia Gray and Veronica Speedwell, as well as other novels and novellas. An Impossible Imposter is the seventh book featuring Veronica Speedwell, and we get a clear sense of our heroine's unconventional approach to life in the first few paragraphs. Somewhere between Paris and London, April, 1889. I do not care for infants, and even if I did, I should not care for this one. It is decidedly moist, I protested to Stoker, thrusting the child towards him. He took it with good grace, and it emitted a sort of cooing sound. It seems to like you, I observed. I could not find fault with the child on that score. From his thirst for adventure to his avid intelligence, Stoker was an eminently likable man when he was in good spirits. The fact that he was superbly fit and partial to reciting Keats in moments of tenderness entered into my assessment of him not in the slightest. I am, after all, a woman of science. Stoker dandled the infant on his knee and it regarded him solemnly, eyes wide and round. I use the word infant in its loosest interpretation. It had, in fact, been born some nine or ten months before, and possessed the appropriate number of teeth and skills for a child of that age. If we had permitted, it would have roamed the first-class compartment, where we were comfortably ensconced en route from Paris to London. The fact that the journey included a channel crossing via boat train was one of a dozen considerations in bringing along the child's nurse, a stout matron of something more than forty years. She was a calmly capable woman who managed her charge with a combination of ruthless efficiency and dollops of real affection. I had taken the precaution of purchasing leather leads to attach to the infant to prevent it from getting loose, but Madame Laborde assured me she was entirely capable of running it to ground, should it escape. And now, please join me in welcoming Deanna Rayborn. Hi, Deanna. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk with me today. Absolutely, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Before we start, I should mention that you were kind enough to send written answers to a short set of questions about Veronica's previous adventure, An Unexpected Peril. Listeners who'd like to learn more about that can find it by searching for your name at blog.cplozzi.com. We'll go in a slightly different direction today, uh, beginning at the beginning, so to speak. So how did you come to write historical mysteries in the first place? Um, I, you know, I, I, I wish there was some sort of, of really elegant story about this, but the truth is, um, I did it because my, my agent, um, 
basically forced me to. Um, (laughs) I had been trying to write and trying to get published for, God, probably six or seven years at that point. And I was trying to write historical romance um, and just was not getting any traction. I was getting kind of close to, to being published, but just never quite got to the point of getting a contract. And I was trying a couple of different time periods and I was trying a couple of different voices and I was just, it was very scattershot and it didn't feel really authentic. And my agent said, you know what? I think you need to stop writing. Uh, she said, I think you need to stop writing for a year. And of course, you know, that's devastating when your agent says that. And I said, well, um, what am I supposed to do with my year? And she said, just read. She said, you don't know who you are as a writer yet. And the best way to figure that out is to know who you are as a reader. And she said, so the best piece of advice I can give you is stop trying to force it, stop writing and go read. And I said, okay. And then what do I do at the end of the year? And she said, you'll know, which I thought was just a really, really nice way of basically blowing me off forever. Um, But at the end of a year, I actually knew exactly what I was supposed to be writing. I looked at the books that I had read uh, over those 12 months and they were, they weren't romances. They were all mystery in structure. They all had um, a historical setting. They all had kind of a, a very dynamic female protagonist. They all had a British sensibility, a very kind of dry British sense of humor to them. And I looked at this stack of books and said, oh my God, that's a, that's a blueprint right there for what I need to be writing. And it took me another two years after that to fully develop and write um, my, it, what ended up being my first published novel, which was Silent in the Grave. And when it was ready, I sent it back to my agent, to whom I had not spoken for three years now, um, and said, okay, you know, I took your advice and this is what happened. And a week later, she called me and said, this is it. You, you did it. We're going to sell this one. And it, it actually took her two years to place it. But when she did, it was um, a three-book hardcover deal. And that book ended up getting, you know, nominated for multiple awards and, and kind of haven't looked back since. A wonderful story. That's really <laughs> heartening for that semester. <laughs> you know, there in the it, trenches. Was, it was not wonderful living it, but it was, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing I've, I really learned at the beginning of my career, because the, the first time I wrote a full novel, I was 23, and I was, um, I had just finished my first year of teaching. Um, I only taught for three years because I am, I am not a good teacher. Um, it, is, it is a calling and a gift that I do not have. Um, but we had, you know, summer break rolled around, and I had just finished rereading Jane Eyre, and, you know, with the hubris of a 23-year-old said, I can do that. Um, so I sat down and I wrote this really sprawling 120,000 word novel in six weeks. And that was the first time I finished a, a project. And I didn't actually get published for 14 years. Uh, I never stopped writing. Uh, sometimes there were very long gaps between projects that I was trying to do, but I wrote about seven or eight books in that time period. Um, dreadful books, dreadful books. Uh, but, but I kept writing and I kept at it. So, you know, if there's anything I I learned, it's that, you know, a writer writes, even when they're not being published, even when no one wants to pay for what you're writing, you are still a writer. I totally agree. Um, so tell us a bit about Lady Julia Gray, uh, including how you developed her and whether her series will continue. Uh, Julia's series is, um, on indefinite hiatus, uh, which is a, a, a kind of a vague way of saying I 
technically own the characters. I can write more stories if I want. The issue would be um, finding a publisher or finding time because of the fact that I am under contract with uh, Berkeley at Penguin Random House for the um, the next series that I started, um, as well as some other projects. So uh, Julia is kind of on the back burner right now. She uh, Julia is a is was just so much fun to write. She uh, is a, is an aristocratic sleuth who kind of falls into detective work because her um, not very much beloved husband basically drops dead in front of her uh, on a ballroom floor, and uh, she realizes. Uh, because it's brought to her attention that he was most likely murdered, and um, you know she she decides not to let sleeping dogs lie. Um, and there were five five books in that series and four novellas um, with my previous publisher, and they were they were great fun to write. They're still available in digital, um, and I I loved Julia and her whole. She has a very enormous madcap completely madcap family. Uh, she's, she's one of 10 aristocratic siblings, uh, which, you know, was, was just a joy to write. And I, I loved being in her world. Uh, but that, uh, that series, um, my previous publisher, uh, stopped publishing those. And then I wrote a few more projects for them and then I moved houses. So she's, she's, as I say, on hiatus and I never say never, but there are no plans right at the moment to, um, to revive any of her, her stories. So I'll just mention in passing then that the, the, some of those other projects are books set in the 1920s, which is a bit of a shift from, from Lady Julia. Um, and there's a Gothic novel somewhere in there too. Um, but where did Veronica Speedwell come from then as a character? Well, you know, I, because I was still under contract with my previous publisher when they decided to um, stop the Julia books, I, I had to write something else for them. Uh, and so we came up with the idea of these, these 1920s adventures because I thought it, they wanted me to take a departure from the Victorian period, and I thought it would be fun. I, I just thought the fun, the, that the 20s would be a really intriguing time to write about, um, and, and it absolutely was. So I kind of did an extended Julia universe because readers who are paying really close attention will see the ties between the 1920s books and the Julia books, which take place in the 1880s. Um, so they feature characters who are, you know, maybe nieces of Julia's or, um, you know, a friend of a friend's godson type of thing. So they, they all take place under this, uh, this kind of Julia umbrella. Uh, in, I don't, maybe it's a Julia multiverse at this point. I'm not sure. Um, but uh, then I decided to uh, leave my previous publisher and um, start something new. So I started the Veronica Speedwell uh, series with, um, Berkeley and, uh, we are launching book seven and I'm writing book eight and I'm under contract for book nine. So Veronica has longer legs than Julia, um, and is also a, um, a Victorian series. She's a very different character than Julia Gray. They have some, some superficial similarities. They're both, um, you know, kind of very determined women, um, you know, very, uh, very smart, uh, very, very inquisitive uh, to their own detriment. Um, and they both have, you know, dishy male sidekicks because that's just fun to write. Um, but Veronica is a woman who actually has to work for a living. She's a lepidopterist. Um, she's a butterfly hunter. So she, um, which was considered to be a, a, a pretty genteel occupation at the time. Uh, you could be ladylike and still 
hunt and sell butterflies for a living. It was it was kind of the the accepted occupation for women within the natural sciences. And um, Veronica was actually inspired by a real life uh, lepidopterist by the name of Margaret Fountain, um, who spent a couple of decades roaming the world. She went to six different continents, uh, butterflying, assembling collections, uh, selling them on, and just having all sorts of fabulous adventures, um, not just butterfly adventures, but um, amorous adventures. Margaret was, um, was uh, uh, you know, a bit of a free spirit, and she left some journals, which make for absolutely fantastic reading, where she talks about, you know, kind of the, um, the, the love affairs and dalliances that she had along the way. And you know, we, we don't tend to think of Victorian women as having the kinds of relationships that Margaret had a lot of times uh, for, uh, uh, you know, an English woman going uh, and traveling the world. She had interracial relationships. She had premarital relationships and they were, they were fully physical, um, which, you know, kind of always startles people when I tell it, because, you know, you think Victorian woman, she's, you know, sitting around mending socks and, you know, uh, waiting to, to tithe in the, in the church plate on Sunday. You don't really think of them as having much of an interesting um, and kind of, you know, scandalous uh, existence, but, but Margaret did to a certain extent. And, you know, I was so intrigued by her adventures and what she got up to and, and a lot of the other uh, Victorian lady explorers, because there were, there were quite a number of them. And the beauty of Victorians is anything they did, they wrote about, they wrote letters home. They uh, wrote lecture series. They gave talks to people. They left um, memoirs and, uh, you know, memoranda about what they were doing. And so there's, there's very little that they were getting up to that you can't find some great uh, piece of written evidence. Um, and so it's just this incredibly enjoyable rabbit hole to fall down. So I, I get to enjoy the research and then I get to go and write some completely, uh, you know, off the wall uh, adventure for Veronica. So I have a great deal of fun writing those books. That's a really interesting observation. I was aware um, that the late Victorian era in particular was a time when women uh, went out and did far more than we think of them from that, you know, angel in the house sort of um, cliche, right? I hadn't realized that that Veronica's um, sexual attitudes were also from drawn from real life. I mean, that is very interesting. It's it's completely contradictory to whatever we thought. Well, you know, that's one of the things that that um, also surprises people is is whenever I mention the fact that you know a lot of the views that we have about Victorian sexuality are based on this idealized version of what the middle class was supposed to aspire to. It's not reflective of the reality. Um, more than 50% of Victorian brides from the lower classes were actually pregnant on their wedding day. Well, you don't get that from being the angel on the hearth. <laughs> that, that, you know, kind of, kind of speaks to uh, a, a slightly earthier uh, sort of lifestyle than, than we tend to credit them with. And if you look at the very upper echelon of society, um, apart from the queen and Prince Albert, who were, you know, because Victoria and Albert were setting this, this example of, of, you know, extreme domestic fidelity and, and, you know, we've, we've got our, our masses of children and every, everything is, is orderly and neat and tidy and respectable. Apart from them, you have uh, a, a really fairly loose 
um, aristocracy. You know, they're they're starting with their oldest son, the Prince of Wales, who ended up becoming um, King Edward VII. He and his friends engaged in country house parties that were basically mate swapping events. You know, they they had all these lovely little rules for how you were supposed to be able to find your mistress's room in the middle of the night. You know, that's the reason they put little name cards outside each door is so the gentleman would be able to find which room they were supposed to go to. And and there would be a very discreet bell that would ring in the morning before the servants all came up with the early morning tray of tea to wake everybody up. There would be a discreet little bell. Well, that bell meant, okay, gentlemen, time to get into your own beds. Go back to your own room now. Um, and, you know, that's how frequent this was and how commonplace it was. Um, you know, one, one Lord even walked into, uh, his wife's, um, his wife's bedroom during one house party and found her with her lover and said, madam, you have to be more careful. What if someone else had found you? Um, he didn't care about, you know, him finding her in flagrante. He didn't want anybody else to do it. You, you know, there, there, everybody who was in this social set knew the rules and knew how to conduct, um, adultery in a way that was acceptable. Um, and they, they absolutely did accept it. There were, there were ways you were supposed to be discreet about it, but so many of them were engaging in it. Um, and it, it just, it makes for this really, really fascinating, um, kind of, of, juxtaposition against what the the ideal is then for the middle class um where there's all this this you know very kind of stuffy moral rectitude and you know all the the hectoring from the pulpit and you know this this image we've got of of how morally upright and perfect victorians were and they really weren't (laughs) they got up to all kinds of shenanigans we could talk about that for the entire interview, because in fact, even with Victoria and Albert, I I know from other interviews that it was mostly Albert. Uh, Victoria was actually quite um, different from what she's expected to be. Absolutely, absolutely. She was she was very Hanoverian in her in her um, you know tastes and enthusiasms, and it was no, this was a holdover from Albert's. Uh, childhood, which was wrecked by his mother's infidelity. And it was, it was, you know, um, when his mother was kind of thrown out of the family and he lost her, I think he was something like five years old. And that, that had a, uh, an incredibly wounding effect on him. And so he was, he was very, very, you know, kind of precise and orderly in in his views on how you were supposed to bestow your affections. <laughs> So let's get to uh, Victoria. Uh, I'm sorry, Veronica. Sorry, you can see it. the whole Victoria thing is having an effect on me. Um, her, Veronica's partner in her investigations is the Honorable Revel Stoke Templeton Vane, uh, who's known as Stoker. Um, tell us about him and what makes him a good compliment for Victoria. Uh, Veronica, I'm, I'm going to do this the rest of the interview. It happens all the time. Don't worry. <laughs> Stoker is um, Stoker's just. Um, bliss to write. He, every time I, I think, um, that I, I haven't quite made him cranky enough. I figure out a way to, to just, you know, rough him up a little further. He's, um, he is, a, an aristocratic bad boy in that he, um, ran away from home. I think the first time is the age of 12 when, when I have him running away from home and he literally joins a circus. Um, and he's, he's dragged back home eventually. And he, he ends up going into the Navy and becoming a 
naval surgeon, and um, he has just a, a very kind of rich life uh, as a, you know, kind of several different incarnations of, of trying to find himself and, and uh, you know, make himself happy within his um within the confines of his aristocratic upbringing, which um, he, he rejects all the time. Um, and he, he ends up becoming a, 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 because of the fact that he has these skills as a naval surgeon and all these interests in natural history, he ends up uh, becoming a, um, uh, a very practical natural historian. He, um, his interest is in taxidermy. Stoker is is existing at a time when the natural historians who were putting together museum collections kind of had to do everything. They would go out into the field, they would hunt a specimen, they would field dress it, they would bring it back to the city, they would taxidermy it, they'd mount it properly, and then they would they would put it up for display. So they they did every part um, of the job. Stoker has kind of evolved from being the guy who would go out and actually kill something to thinking, you know what, we've done enough killing. Let's, let's see what we can do with the trophies that we already have. So as, um, as an artist, as a sculptor, as a historian, his job is to take really, really tragic um, trophy mounts and, and kind of refurbish them, re-sculpt them, remount them, make them into to things of, uh, of, of beauty that, that kind of give dignity back to these, these animals. And, and they're used then um, for display purposes, but also for educational purposes, because Victorians were huge on the, you know, pay, pay a, a penny and go see this exhibit and learn all about this thing. And so that's, that's kind of what uh, the work that he and Veronica are both engaged in is, um, you know, when they're not falling over dead bodies and unmasking murderers is uh, they're both um, employed by uh, an Earl to take all the, the, the various things that his family has acquired over the years and kind of uh, establish a museum for him. So right now they're in the cataloging phase and it's everything from coin collections to fossils to mummies. And so they're, they're working their way through this collection and Stoker's main task is to deal with the natural history uh, specimens. And he um, he's got uh, a fair bit of tragic baggage, um, but he also has a huge sentimental streak. He reads um, French romance novels, and he's um, he very much uh, he he just is very very soft hearted in spite of his incredibly gruff exterior. He's very cranky, and that's that's how I like him. He is, and he quotes Keats and all kinds of things. Um, I'm glad that you mentioned Louis <laughs> Moran. <laughs> Uh, by now, by the time we've gotten to book seven, um, Veronica and Stoker uh, have a fairly large cast of um, associates, and I'm afraid we're not going to get to all of them. But uh, Lord Rose Moran also has a sister, Cordelia, uh, who is important to Veronica and Stoker. Can you tell us a little bit about that household? Cordelia has, uh, Lady Cordelia has taken over kind of the raising of her brother's children, not because he's unfit, but because he's incredibly forgetful. And, you know, between us, I'm not even sure he knows how many children he has. Um, and so she's, she's much more practical. Um, his, his wife is long dead. I killed her off way before book one. Um, and so Lady Cordelia kind of oversees the, the management of these children. Um, there's several of them between the ages of, oh, I think they're between 10 and 18 at this point. And, um, and they, they are 
each and every one a handful. Um, they're they're kind of brilliant and wayward, and uh, one of them is always in her room doing science experiments and blowing things up, and uh, you know one of the others is always attempting to mummify things because he's testing out theories, and so Cordelia kind of has to to oversee all of this. She herself is. Um, is a very gifted and intelligent woman and she feels uh, a little bit um, underutilized um, as a surrogate mother for these children who do not belong to her. And she has introduced Veronica to um, an organization called the Hippolyta Club, um, which is a, a club for extraordinary women uh, of, of kind of significant accomplishment. Uh, it's also known uh, familiarly as the Curiosity Club. And so it's a women's only club and it's for explorers and mathematicians and, uh, you know, women who are just doing very interesting and unusual things, largely because of the fact that the male clubs at this time would never have accepted them in. Um, the Royal Geographic Society at this point was not admitting female explorers. Um, you know, so there were um, mathematical organizations that were not allowing women in. And so if you wanted to really be recognized for your accomplishments and, and not have to deal with all the, the hassle of, you know, kind of dealing with the male ego, I, the Hippolyta Club is the place for you. Um, and it is certainly the place for Cordelia. So uh, she has introduced Veronica there, and um, Veronica has become a member, and that's that's sort of their hideaway from the world when the rest of it all gets to be too much. And and gentlemen are absolutely not permitted inside, um, except for uh, you know one little reception room where they're allowed to come in, but under sufferance. No one really wants the men to come in. <laughs> Let's get to the current book now. Uh, the scene I read at the B uh, in the introduction uh, is taking place as Veronica and Stoker are returning to London. Um, They've come from the Alplenwald, which is the, it's not the location of the last book, but it's it's associated with the last book. And their feet have barely touched British soil, and they get a summons from Sir Hugo Montgomery. Uh, who is he, and what does he want from them? Sir Hugo Montgomery is their sometime ally and sometime enemy. He is um, the head of Special Branch at Scotland Yard. Um, which uh, is a real position, but he is very much a fictitious person. Um, Special Branch at the time was tasked with a lot of different things, but one of their primary responsibilities is the safety and security of the royal family. And so um, Veronica and Stoker have a, a kind of loose connection on the periphery of the royal family. They they occasionally meet members in a sort of roundabout way and um, occasionally are involved in very delicate situations that could, um, you know, if there's something that could bring in uh, a bit of scandal and they need someone trustworthy to handle it, uh, a lot of times they'll rely on Veronica and Stoker to do it. In this case, it's not official business that has Sir Hugo calling them in. It is, um, it's much more um, kind of a, a personal favor to him. Um, so he, uh, he kind of prevails upon their, their better nature and Veronica's, you know, kind of incessant curiosity uh, because she never can resist a mystery to, uh, to see if he can get them to help him out uh, with a delicate situation um, of his own. And what is it specifically that he wants them to do? They are um, asked to go to um, Hathaway Hall, which is um, a, a mansion I created on the Devon Moors, um, which that's just 
an homage to Hound of the Baskervilles, which was the first um, proper grown-up mystery that I ever read. Um, I think when I was a kid, there were these, um, I don't even know if they still publish them anymore, great illustrated classics, uh, which were abridged versions um, for children. And uh, the very first one that I ever read, I think it was about six, was uh, Hounded the Baskervilles. And I absolutely adored it. And it's still my favorite in the um, Sherlock canon. So I, I decided to, you know, give Veronica a little, um, a little trip to the Devon Moors, uh, just out of my love for that book. Um, they are asked to go there because the heir to Hathaway Hall uh, died a number of years before, but has apparently um, appeared once more um, and uh, is looking to establish a claim to the estate. And because Veronica may have met him in the past, Sir Hugo is hoping that she might be able to help him identify whether or not this uh, young man is actually who he purports to be. Um, and the connection for him is that the young man's sister is his goddaughter. And so he's, he's involved on a very personal level. Um, in something that really would not be significant enough to draw his attention if it wasn't for the fact that he's looking out for his goddaughter, um, who is um, kind of a, a, an intriguing young woman in her own right. She certainly is. And uh, I hope to, that we'll talk about her in just a little bit. Uh, I guess we should probably not say any more about why Sir Hugo thinks that Veronica can identify Jonathan Hathaway, because that would, the whole point of the well, one point of the book is is to reveal the answer to that question. So, let's uh, let's move them forward uh, to Hathaway Hall. What do they find when they get there, uh, Veronica and Stoker? Uh, I'm asking about the family in residence in particular. Well, Hathaway Hall is um, it it you know when when these landed estates change hands, a lot of times it's an opportunity for the next generation to kind of remake it in their image, and so you have that that tension where we are between generations, because there's the older uh, Lady Hathaway, who is the grandmother of the current incumbent, um, who is there with his new wife, who is new money, um, and coming in. And so there's this this friction from uh, old money versus new money, you know, uh, the the kind of the, the previous reign versus uh, the, the newcomer who wants to kind of uh, make everything modern and, you know, install flushing toilets and, and you know, that sort of thing uh, versus the people who are happy with, you know, chamber pots and uh, 800 maids running up and down the stairs. Um, and so the family is, is kind of divided on whether or not um, the young man who has turned up is in fact uh, the lost heir, Jonathan Hathaway. And, and, you know, then the questions start to arise. What does that mean for the rest of the family? Um, does he get a share of the inheritance? Does the estate belong to him? Um, and, and so those are, that creates a whole new set of tension, uh, you know, for, for everybody involved. Do you want to talk about what the evidence is for and against at the very beginning of the story? Well, the, the evidence is, is based on uh, physical resemblance. And, uh, you know, the, the interesting uh, thing is that Jonathan, Jonathan, in air quotes, um, because we don't know at this point if he is or is not Jonathan, is um, suffering from amnesia and does not actually make a claim. He has turned up, you know, kind of unwell and uh, in a state of collapse at the gates of the estate and 
it's when the family bring him in that they look at him and say, oh, good heavens, this must be Jonathan. And so half the family thinks he is, half the family thinks he isn't. And he's very much keeping his mouth closed on the subject because of the fact that, you know, this is this is this is not something he knows for sure. Um, so he's kind of relying on them to tell him. So uh, it, Veronica and Stoker enter at a point when there's there's kind of an interesting uh, uh, crossroads, uh, you know, between which path are they going to take? You know, are they are they going to, to have to pursue this in the courts? Are they going to go looking for further evidence? And, you know, Sir Hugo has sent them in um, under a cover story so that the family don't even realize why they're there. So they're sleuthing very much, um, you know, kind of in the shadows and, and uh, surreptitiously trying to figure out the truth um, because Sir Hugo thinks it's probably a good idea not to set the cat amongst the pigeons just yet, but to try to get an answer um, and quietly resolve everything. Because, of course, this would be a tremendous scandal, as it already had been. There, there were cases... Um, the, the most famous one being the Arthur Orton case um, where, uh, you know, a, a butcher from Australia rolled up and, and suddenly presented himself as the long lost heir to a baronetcy and a fortune. And it ended up uh, dragging through the courts and becoming this massive story. And anyone who actually, you know, cares about anyone the way that Sir Hugo cares about this family doesn't want to see them dragged through the press, dragged through the courts. And so his, his thought is let's be, let's be very discreet about all of this and let's, you know, just kind of handle it in a, in a very quiet uh, and respectable and dignified way. So Veronica and Stoker appear under the guise of um, kind of evaluating uh, some natural history trophies there uh, for the um, the collection uh, that they acquire for in London. And so the idea is that they're going to be looking at, um, you know, kind of some unusual trophies uh, because the, the current holder of Hathaway Hall is looking to liquidate and get rid of all the dusty things that his, uh, his father and grandfather have collected. So uh, it's a chance for Stoker to go poke around and, you know, uh, inspect the, the, rare animals that he doesn't usually get to see. So he has one of his little uh, fanboy moments where he gets to see a particularly rare animal that he's enamored with. And, um, you know, Veronica gets to inspect the local butterfly life um, while they're investigating this mystery. As you mentioned, the daughter of the family, uh, whose name is Euphemia, she's known as Effie, uh, is not a classic Victorian maiden in the cliched sense either. She has an interest in astronomy, in fact, uh, which creates a bond between her and Veronica. Where does Effie's interest come from and what is her goal in life? Effie's interest come from her grandfather um, who built an observatory in their home in order to, um, you know, kind of extend his studies. You know, this is, this is one of the things that for Victorians kind of marked a, a gentleman um, was the ability to... Uh, have an interest or a pursuit that you could put money into um, and and just enjoy and kind of further your knowledge of. And, uh, you know, some gentlemen were just dilettantes and they just dabbled in a few things, but some of them actually, you know, uh, furthered the cause of scholarship. And so Effie's grandfather has been um, a, a, an astronomy scholar and has left her his equipment and his notebooks and his observatory. Unfortunately for Effie, um, this 
kind of comes into direct conflict um, with her brother's wife uh, and what she believes a proper young Victorian woman should do. Because, uh, again, it's the, the collision of old money versus new money. And, you know, they're, they're, you see this a lot in Victorian um, manners manuals and etiquette guides. You see, well, this is how you're supposed to behave. Well, the reason they were writing so many of those guides is not because everyone behaved that way. It's because too many people didn't. They had to put these guides out because suddenly you had a, a, a really enormous middle class that hadn't been trained to these things and wanted to know, okay, you know, where does, where does the oyster fork, uh, fork go? You know, what, what do you do with, um, you know, do you eat grapes with, with, you know, do you use the grape scissors under these circumstances or how do you address a bishop? And so all these, these books and guides are being written and they're being, you know, devoured by people who are trying desperately to be upwardly mobile and to, to make it seem as if they've always had this kind of polish. And in the case of, uh, Euphemia or Effie, you know, she can be as eccentric as she wants because she's got old money. She's got this this uh, this blue blood behind her. Um, unfortunately, the money is almost entirely gone. So her brother marries a young woman with a great deal of cash who has these these kind of very strict, narrow ideas about propriety and how you should behave and how you should conduct yourself and running around, you know, in muddy skirts wearing men's brogues and spending all hours of the night up with your telescope that those just don't fit into um into her idea of how effie should be conducting herself and so her her way of dealing with effie is just you know kind of very much a tough love uh sort of an approach which is we need to just clear it all out you you need to settle down and get married um is is her philosophy you know she's very much the sort of woman who would have put the the angel of the hearth kind of um at the forefront of uh her own ambitions um and and anything that deviates from that is just kind of dangerous and suspect to her and you know so to her mind effie is is just kind of wayward and incorrigible but of course effie is a um a sister in spirit to veronica who uh completely understands why she's enamored of something and passionate about it and wants to pursue it so i think we've gone about as far into the story as we can go without uh depriving readers of the fun of you know <laughs> finding the whole thing out for themselves no spoilers no spoilers yeah <laughs> and exactly. i want to assure them that it is a great deal of fun uh frankly the whole series is wonderful i would suggest people actually start at the beginning and read through because things do develop over time and you will have much better you you won't have spoiled the the, the early books if you start with them um what would you like people to take away from an impossible imposter and its predecessors? I want them to have fun. Um, you know, my I absolutely to me one of the, the the greatest joys is when a reader, you know, contacts me and says, I was going through a really horrible divorce and I found your books and they gave me a little bit of an escape or I took your books to chemo or, you know, I've got newborn twins and they don't sleep and sometimes I just take ten minutes and read a, those kinds of messages thrill me to no end. And, you know, as every writer is also a reader and as a reader, I know how much, particularly during the pandemic, it has meant to me to be able to escape just for a little while and say, okay, you know what, for the next half an hour, I'm not going to worry about anything. I'm just going to go to this world and I'm going to be with these characters and I'm just going to enjoy that time. And to, to be able to do that for anyone else 
I, I think is just a, a, a tremendous uh, gift for me. So I'm, I'm delighted if anybody gets entertainment or escape uh, from what they've read. Fabulous. That's, that's the most I can hope for. When we uh, did our blog Q&A in 2021, you mentioned that you were working on a contemporary novel that was also scheduled to release this year. Is that actually happening? Or have you been caught up in Veronica the whole time? Oh, no, it's actually happening. It will be out in September. Um, it is the story of four female assassins who are 60 years old on the cusp of retirement and who have to band together to take out the organization they work for when the organization targets them. And uh, I have had more fun writing that book than anything I have ever done. I love it with my whole heart. Um, It's out in September and it's called Killers of a Certain Age. I love the title. So what are you working on now? I can't take credit for the title. I cannot. I wish I could. But the vice president of PR for the company is the one who actually thought of the title when the rest of us were banging our heads together. He just dropped it out there and we were like, well, you're brilliant. Um, yeah, I love, love, love the title. Right now I am writing Veronica number eight. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Deanna Rayburn about An Impossible Imposter. Find out more about her at www.deannarayborn.com. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Network. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network.